The title of tonight's talk is The Wise Heart. And it's interesting for me, uh, this, uh, Jack Kornfield wrote a book called The Wise Heart, and then an earlier book that was famous was A Path with Heart. And so uh, much earlier than I did, Jack Kornfield caught on to what's more important here really is the heartfelt sense of being present and being free more than what we might call uh, working with the mind, if the mind feels more like the intellect. And I was looking at other people um, start to also translate words that in the Buddha's language might have been translated as mind. At times it actually feels much more appropriate to translate it as heart. And so maybe we don't have that so much in this culture yet. But what I'd like to talk about is the waking up of the heart the waking up of what by, I'll probably end up using mind because I'm so used to it, but really it's the relational mind. It's the mind that has a relationship to what it's going through, that it's not running away from, numbing out or hiding from. The experiences you find in life, that there's a way that uh, you can be fully connected and feel fully free and content with any experience that life gives you, all the way from the most sublime to the most challenging. And that's really what we're practicing here and where these practices lead. When I was younger, um, I went to this wilderness camp for many years. And it was the first time I saw truly, truly deeply wise people the people who had been up there leading these wilderness trips for a long time. And what made them stand out as wise is that when it began to rain and get cold, um, when we hadn't slept well, when for some reason we didn't get to eat a meal because um, things were so challenging, they stayed happy and the rest of us got sad. <laughs> the rest of us declined in our welfare and they didn't seem to decline in our welfare. And I lived with them, these uh, people leaving these trips for six weeks, and I got to watch them. Every now and then there'd be a little flash of anger, but for the most part, they could sleep on the ground, they could be outside, get cold and wet like we did, but they always had like a twinkle, a little smile, always there with a joke. They were very comfortable in those circumstances. And I didn't get it. I didn't like, how can you stay happy? What, what are you doing? Because back at home where I have hot water and air conditioning and food that we can cook on the stove. I'm not as happy as you are, but you have so much less, but your happiness is unshakable. And suddenly, that's actually some of the language that the Buddha used, is how to deliver your heart to an unshakable freedom. And I promise you, it, it, it entails very much of what you've been doing. You haven't been doing other than that, uh, making strides, as the Buddha um, recommended, even though at times I'm sure it didn't feel like it. The other time that I uh, saw deeply wise people was during um, a time when I was doing a lot of activism. And I was uh, in the early 90s, late 80s and early 90s, we were trying to stop the uh, nuclear testing that was done in Nevada. And so 5,000 people would go and get arrested and do civil disobedience. And there was a philosophy in that, that you can't end violence with violence. 
But if I ended my violence, I didn't know how to stop violence. That was the power I was used to as a young man. And I got to see these older Quaker women um, walk up and get arrested. But they did it with so much joy, the same joy that these wilderness guides have. You know, they're being arrested. Um, they were incredibly polite and joyful throughout the whole experience. And so they would walk and they would cross over this gate they shouldn't cross over and the guard would come over and they'd say, oh, look, there it is, Frank. This year, Frank's going to arrest us. And Frank would go like, ah, Mabel, I've been waiting all year, how are you? And they would have, he would be putting on metal handcuffs, so that was definitely being arrested. But there was this peaceful exchange. And I thought, in that, right there, they've ended a war. Two different sides, two different needs. And they've worked out a way that there's, he still has responsibilities to arrest them. They're still breaking the law for their convictions. But they've ended the arising of uh, animosity, hatred, power, and they found a relationship. And for them it was clear, it was long ago clear that that's how they wanted to stop nuclear testing in their small way, is to end the anger and the pain in their heart and the actions that would come out of a disturbed heart. And they had accomplished it with this police officer. Later on there would be a drumming circle and this police officer had ended the anger in his heart. I got to see wisdom on his side. I saw him walk towards this group of drummers and I thought, oh, here it comes. I was waiting for what I thought had to be opposition. And he would just walk his way through and he was sort of hugged by the people who were drumming. And I was like, okay, maybe this isn't large-scale nuclear disarmament, <laughs> but it's small-scale nuclear disarmament. That uh, both sides, where there was wisdom, had learned that it wasn't helpful, it wasn't noble, it wasn't uh, more winning for your side to express anger or power over. And um, I began to see that, but I didn't know how to do it myself. So I began to see, like, okay, this is important, but how am I going to really transform this heart that does get angry, that does feel scared, and then Matt tries to match my scare with ferocity, so I feel courage because I'm angry, because underneath I'm scared. And I didn't know how to do that. I didn't know how to transform my own heart. Until I came on my first meditation retreat. And I promise you, if this is your first one, I suffered. Uh, I suffered knee pain and back pain and confusion and doubt and uh, wishing I hadn't come and then five minutes would pass or an hour would pass and all of a sudden I'd be getting it. I was like, oh, I was made for this. This is, <laughs> I, I'm a natural. <laughs> Why did it take me so long to discover that this is how it is? The body would feel good, the mind would feel good. I, I've arrived. And then the clouds would come in like, oh, where's it all going? I've lost it. I shouldn't be here tumbling up and down and up and down until I got used to going up and down. Until I heard the teacher say, you'll probably go up and down a lot. And it's like, oh, well, so this is how it goes. This is how it goes, but how does this move forward? After the end of that retreat, we had to go around and I said, big bow to whoever has done this twice, <laughs> because I am not doing this twice. Uh, I'm glad I made it through once, but um, I only need to do it once to know it's too difficult. This path is too difficult. I, there must be another way. 
months went by and years went by, and I didn't find another way. I didn't find another way that was that clean and direct to sit with your own body, your own heart, and your own mind, and begin cultivating, cultivating more patience, cultivating more intimacy with yourself, knowing all the parts of yourself that you don't usually want to see, or the ones you exaggerate, hoping that that's who you truly are, but ending up with a really warped self-relationship. And what was it like to sit in the middle of who you are and grow a sense of being okay with that? And I began to taste, even after that first retreat, that that's how I could be free if I wanted to do nuclear disarmament, or that's how I could be free up in the Canadian woods when it was raining. But it was just really, really difficult. So um, I get it. I, I get how difficult this path can be at times. And I hope it doesn't seem like a, a ruse not to put that on the brochure. <laughs> but there might be sort of a lot of empty seats here if we did put that on the brochure. So the, the path is challenging. It is challenging. But it also is rewarding. And if you've come back for a second time or more, or if you even intuited that, um, that tends to be more of what you begin to access is an ability to sit with what you're experiencing. And it may not be pleasant, but it doesn't have to make you suffer. And that's actually where the difference can be made. And that's straight out of the Buddha's teachings that uh, as far as he could see, and as far as many have seen since, it's not possible to live a life that doesn't have unpleasant experiences, no matter how we go about it. And I feel like this culture, the uh, North American culture, American culture has tried as best as humanity has ever tried it <laughs> to stack up as many pleasant things, as many ways that we can get it in. <laughs> um, and polls show that we actually, on average, are, we report less happiness than other cultures. So I don't know if that, how, um, how even that comparison would be. I'm not a scientist in that way. But we've tried. We've tried to be happy through avoiding what's unpleasant and covering ourselves with what's pleasant. And it doesn't seem to actually go that deep into us to really give us a great sense of unshakable happiness. It actually can cause a very fragile happiness where the only way you know how to be happy or content is if something sweet is on your tongue or something flashy is at your eyes or something pretty is at your ears. And then if it's not there, then how do you manufacture happiness if that's all you've known? I know that's not the case because that would be truly impossible to only be happy when those pleasant things are happening. But I feel like it's a cultural message that uh, you can have bright white teeth and be thin forever and uh, always be happy and there are magazines devoted to it and they'll show you how. Um, so you, tr you can try that route and I think our culture is trying. But what uh, you, you have discovered and you've had experience of this more than most people um, is what, how this path works, how this path works to set you free. In the Buddha's um, teachings, he, he taught for a long time, and some of the talks that he gave are very long and complex 
descriptions of how the mind works. But he also gave a lot of short talks, and those short talks were collected in a book called the Dhammapada. <clears throat> and so it's a bunch of little sayings that um, you could memorize, and then you kind of, he could believe, but you could remember the, the pith of what he was trying to teach. And so the Dhammapada, this book of quotations, begins with this most famous one, the first one. And it's a bunch of lines. And the first line is, the heart precedes all experiences. All experiences are ruled by the heart. They are made in the heart. If with an impure heart a person speaks or acts, suffering follows him or her like the wheel follows the foot of the ox. The second line, the heart precedes all experience. Experiences are ruled by the heart, they are made in the heart. If with a pure heart, a wise heart, a person speaks or acts, happiness follows him or her, like his never departing shadow. So just to look a little bit at those first two lines, one, it's beautiful for the imagery, and there's actually a subtle imagery in there, the other is that the heart and the mind and our nervous system, if you are in an angry mood, no matter what experience you have, it'll be filtered by the anger you're having. If you're in an anxious mood, if you're in a joyful mood, if you're in a calm mood. So whatever mood you're in, whatever state your nervous system and your heart, your mind, whatever state they're in, has a primary impact over what you're experiencing. We could all look at the same thing, but we're filtering it through the state of our being at that time. So that's why they say the heart precedes experience. By the time you're having the experience, it's already been filtered through the, the emotions, uh, the state of your body, the state of your mind, before it even coheres as, this is my experience. I'm listening to music and liking it. I'm feeling pain in my back and not liking it. There's a lot of filtering happening in the heart. So if, you, if your heart is troubled and agitated and you act out of that in an unwise way, it says that suffering follows you like the wheel follows the foot of an ox. When you live in countries that have ox that draw carts and the, uh, the, the wheel well gets very deep and the ox tend to walk in that wheel well. So there'd be two ox and the wheels go right behind them. And so the idea is that there's a rut that builds up over hundreds of years as these ox carts are going down these same roads. And they dig in a rut. And so the ox actually doesn't have to think very much. It only has to pull forward. And then the wheel is bound to follow wherever the ox walks. When I was uh, practicing in Burma, there'd be times I would see um, these people going to work early in the morning right as the sun was rising. And they'd be asleep, actually. They'd be getting the last few minutes of sleep in the ox cart. And the ox would just be doing what they always had done. They always know, at this time of the day, I walk to this particular field. And the person sort of called it a little blanket, getting the last minutes of sleep. So in this image, there's actually a sense of being somewhat asleep, being caught in a rut, that the patterns of your mind that keep you uh, unhappy are somewhat 
um, ruts that we live in. We're not creating new unhappiness for ourselves. We're often uh, finding the same unhappiness in new circumstances because there's a bit of a groove that's been worn in. And the imagery of the second line, if with a pure heart a person speaks or acts, happiness follows him or her like their never departing shadow. And so in this sense, the happiness is actually behind you, like the shadow following you. You're not pursuing happiness. You have a pure heart, pure mind, and you're walking. And a byproduct of that, that sort of light, uh, not weighing you down, that sort of drifting behind you, is your own happiness. So if your heart is in a pure place, what tends to come out of that is happiness. So rather than seeking happiness, you seek this wise, pure heart. And out of that comes this unshakable happiness. That's what I noticed both in the Quaker women and these wilderness guides. They weren't seeking happiness. If they were, they wouldn't go out in the cold rain summer after summer and work with teenagers (laughs) and deal with all the weather and the canned food and all that. They were seeking something. But happiness wasn't the forefront of what they were looking for, but they knew it was the byproduct. And then when I became a staff at this camp, I got to see that it was hard up there. But I knew after a few weeks, happiness would just begin to come out like a scent comes out of a flower when it blooms. Every summer, there'd be this unshakable happiness, even though the conditions were harder. Because my life, when I lived up there, was much more um, pure and much more clearly devoted to a beautiful purpose of teaching young people the capacity to live in the wilderness and to let go of their um, entanglements with material living. And so with such a noble purpose, after a time, happiness would just begin to come out of us like fragrance out of a flower. Anyways, these are the first two lines of this collection, and they're quite beautiful. The next two lines um, go, if you, if you ruminate in a way where you hold on to your resentments, in some ways we all do that, we all can remember doing that, that holding on to them feels good, it feels like you're not letting someone get away with anything, but while you hold that resentment, you're actually digging in the groove of a resentful mind, a mind that's easily resentful. So letting go of resentments, letting go of uh, harboring them, to repeat them over and over, to keep grudges and keep score with each other, letting that go, um, that that is the path out of that pattern, is to not keep Uh, stoking those fires of your own resentment or anger. The fifth line is very popular, or it's one that you will hear a lot. Hatred is never ceased by hatred in this world. By non-hatred alone is hatred appeased. This is the eternal law. So there again, if anger arises in you, and you begin to really feed it, 
you're only digging a groove that makes anger more likely to arise. But if anger begins to arise in you and you begin to see it, and you can choose something else, non-anger. Non-anger could be just go for a walk. Non-anger could be to take a breath, just not stoke the fires of your own anger, let alone develop compassion or forgiveness, kindness, patience. Then you're changing the way that the mind is patterned. You're changing the way that your heart is patterned. And the last line is from this first offering. There are those who do not realize that one day we all must die. There are those who do not realize that one day we all must die. But those who do realize this settle their quarrels. And so that bittersweet truth that is true for all of us and as some people in this retreat have mentioned, it's actually becoming uh, more, more tangible for them. The, the sense of their own limited life. As that bittersweet truth begins to ripen, you have the opportunity of also letting go of old resentments, coming into a greater compassion that life is fragile and fleeting and should not be wasted in harboring your resentments or quarrels or anger. A few, um, a few weeks ago, I was teaching a class on the free heart and the free mind. And so I was in particularly good shape to have this at the forefront of my mind. I talked to class, I was outside of a church, and I came to my car, and I got in. And it, I was just stunned for a moment because my window had been broken. And I couldn't, I couldn't get what had happened. I was near a, a school, and there was a ball field. And so at first I was like, wow, is there an accident? Is, I, don't see what, I don't understand what's happened. And I saw that my computer bag was gone. But there was a moment when I thought it was an accident that my mind was sort of organizing one way around it. You know, someone may got hurt or this ball might have come in or just an accident. And then I realized, oh no, someone had broken it and stolen my computer. And I watched my mind start to go towards anger or start to go towards outrage or start to go towards fear or start to... And I was able to, after a long time of doing these practices that we've done here, not do that. I sat there and I looked out the window and I thought, okay, will anger actually help me in this situation? I've definitely done it before, so I have a lot to experience to draw upon. Out of the 10,000 times I got angry, what, what actually happened? It made it harder for people to help me because I had to deal with how angry I was. I began to kind of get sick inside and hate humanity for how kind of unfair it all seems. Um, I began to feel a little bit like a victim, like why is this always happened to me? And so I was like, that never actually has helped. That never actually has made things better. It's actually taken a bad situation and made it worse. I'm already lost my computer 
and all my checks and my, and my wallet and all the important documents in there and some mementos that were tucked away in there that I'll never see again. Why would I also open this up and pour in hatred or pour in fear or pour in resentment? Like it's already a difficult night, but it just is going to get worse if I add anger to this. So being able in that moment to say, let's not do that. As Dana mentioned this morning, um, life will hit you with one arrow. You yourself hit you with the next five. And then you bemoan that you're suffering from six arrows. <laughs> that night, <clears throat> I got to see the wisdom of that teaching, that it was already, I had already been hit by an arrow, already painful enough to kind of contend with the loss of uh, the computer and how entwined technology has gotten in with our modern lives. And like, it's complicated to, um, to straighten that out. But I had been okay before that. I was okay while it was happening. I knew I would be okay afterwards. So why become un-okay? Why make this something that had to bring me down? And there are two uh, very short poems that reflect this. Two very short poems that were actually, I, I'd heard them enough that they were there within reach when I discovered that my car had been broken into. The first one is by um, a famous Japanese monk, poet, Ryokan. He wrote, it's very short, The thief took everything but the moon at the window. And maybe a little context of that, uh, Ryokan probably had a small hermitage and probably had very few possessions in this hermitage and uh, he would wander about but always maybe have a place to come back to. And one day he comes back and what little he had is gone. And now he has not only just a little, he has nothing. But in that moment, he's able to, as the imagery goes, see that there's still beauty that hasn't been touched, even though he's lost possessions. So in that moment, things have been stolen, but everything is as, is as beautiful as it always has been if that's where I point my attention, if that's where I'm drawing my welfare from, the rising and setting of the moon, the stars at night, the beauty of the sky, things that can't be taken in a way. Also in this is imagery that the moon is often used as um, a symbol for the enlightened or the free heart and mind. And so the thief, which is the way things are, can take anything from you but your own free heart and mind. And once you can see and have a relationship to your own free heart and mind, it can't be taken. But if you're relying upon anything other than that, it can be taken and you'll suffer for it. So the thief can take everything but the moon at the window. There's another poem just as short it's just about the same. It begins, the barns burnt down and now I can see the moon. And maybe the imagery is of a big barn and someone is used to having the barn there, but now that the barn has totally burned down, there's so much more space to watch the moon. And so in that moment of loss, 
in that moment of loss that could lead into grief, there actually is another doorway. That same loss can be liberating because if you were relying upon whatever was lost, that relying upon it will drag you down in the hole of, what was, of what's now missing. But if you've learned to be intimate with life, but come from a free heart and mind, then as circumstances come and go and change, quickly or slowly, it doesn't have to generate loss. It doesn't have to generate grief or, disorient, or becoming disoriented. If you're oriented towards your own free heart and mind, then your free heart and mind are as safe as the moon is in the sky from any, uh, any intervention. And lastly, from the Dhammapada again. Um, whatever an enemy might do to an enemy or a foe to a foe, the ill-directed heart can do you even worse. So the patterns that live within all of us hopefully remain dormant. But when they wake up, if they are actually our own grief or sorrow or anger or fear, our own self-hatred, we can harm ourselves from within a thousand times a day more than anybody who's ever really kind of scolded us or told us anything from the outside. A lot of these messages did start from the outside, which is unfortunate. Children don't have an uh, intrinsic self-hate that unfortunately has to be taught. If you have something in you, some poor relationship, it usually was something taught by the media or mistaken moments from parents or from being picked on at school. These messages found their way in, but we propagate them inside, which gives us the power to unpropagate them. And that's really where we can go with this. We can head towards our own freedom because we are the ones who are perpetuating the internal harm that we do to ourselves. And then the next line of this quote from the Dhammapada, whatever a mother or a father or a kinsman might do for you, the well-directed heart can do for you even better. So not only can we stop the way we harm ourselves, but once your own heart and mind are free, there's nobody who could assist you more uh, Martina is a very long and dear friend, and I once helped her out very much, and she's helped me out very much. And I'm not going to have 10,000 friends like Martina. And <clears throat> if I'm in a bad place, it's great to have friends because I'm in a bad place. But once I actually set my heart free, then I'm free when I fall asleep at night, I'm free when I wake up, I'm free on Tuesday, and I'm free Thursday night. <laughs> I'm free in January, and come August, I'll be also free. I'll be free in all circumstance. When this heart inside me is free, you all could not help me as much as what happens. Every degree in my own heart is, is set free. And when my heart is finally free, there's no greater freedom I'll know than anything that could come from the outside. And this is the work you've been doing. And the work is done by coming in 
and disrupting patterns and creating new ones. So we come in and if there was no meditation instruction and you just had silence, that would already disrupt patterns because we're used to talking a lot and being busy. So that's already disrupting patterns. But then encouraging yourself to cultivate self-intimacy, self-intimacy within your body, self-intimacy within your heart, self-intimacy within your mind. And because the patterns are strong, we get kicked around a lot. And over time you can see that it's as, it's as simple, maybe not as easy, but it's as simple as remembering not more of this just endless thought, old patterns, a new pattern of appreciating this body and being within it. And then you take your attention, come down to your body, and what happens is that the patterns that are truly beautiful inside of you flourish with a relationship to your body, with a relationship to the present. They're like plants that love sunlight. And so the more present you are with your experience in this patient way, everything that's beautiful within you is getting nourished. Everything that is uncomfortable inside, the, way, the place where fear comes from or anger or impatience, the way you uh, talk cruel to yourself, all the patterns that make it tough to be inside don't thrive with presence and intimacy. They actually need a little bit of darkness to thrive. They're almost like mold. <laughs> they, they thrive in damp, wet places that you neglect. And so coming in, there's house cleaning that happens. And if you haven't cleaned your garage in a while, it's pretty dusty. So we all come in to retreat and we begin settling in and we begin to see our patterns our patterns of thinking, our patterns of feeling, our patterns that have been laid down our body. We'll have stress, a lot of us, in our back or our shoulders or our neck. We'll be somewhat numb to it, but we kind of feel it in daily life, but not that much. Then we come here and we begin to actually permeate those areas of our body with intimacy. And it's not pleasant, but over time they soften and they open because they are being touched, they are being connected to. And they aren't being reinforced with neglect or stress. And so slowly your shoulders do drop down and those incredible meat hook knots uh, in your back do begin to loosen. And as the belief systems that create them begin to open up and not get reinforced, the whole system of your body, heart and mind begin to let go of old patterns of stress and anxiety and fear and doubt and impatience and competitiveness, unhealthy competitiveness. Those, you're not stoking them here, you're not feeding them here, you're, they're not being reinforced. When you go home, you have the option of doing your own gardening inside to cultivate what is beautiful, to cultivate a positive self-relationship, to start small and build upon that. So you've learned techniques here that do translate when you go home. There's a practice that I've uh, done a lot myself and talked and taught to students. It's very simple. It's this word stop, S-T-O-P. It's four letters. And so this is called stop practice. The S stands for stop, so that's easy. You already had that one. The T stands for take a breath. 
The O stands for observe, and the P stands for proceed. So as you're going through life, you're driving, going to work, talking to friends, taking care of your kids or your parents, or cleaning around the house, whatever you're doing, every now and then you take up this practice, stop. Write what you're doing, you're washing your dishes or whatever, stop. Take one breath. If you haven't been in your body, you're now a little more available. If you were in your body, it feels good. So you stop, take a breath, observe what's happening, and then proceed. If what you were doing was already great, you'll just carry on. If what you were doing was tumbling forward, kind of lost in stress or doubt or irritation, you have a chance, you have a little chance to say, nah, not more of that. Let's see how else I could proceed. So it's a practice you can do for yourself. It's simple, so it's doable. You can do it mm, 10 times a day, 100 times a day. <clears throat> you're doing a lot here, I and mean, you're just nothing but kind of stopping and taking breaths. What I've uh, gotten some of my students to do is to text each other the word stop. Because often, when I think to stop, I'm actually doing pretty good. If it even occurs to me to stop, I'm not as confused as I get, because if I'm really confused, I probably won't even occur to me to stop. It's just, ah, <laughs> go. Um, so if someone texts you the word stop, it's simple for a little text. And I've had it, I was at a stop sign, I was in, coming to a meeting from Spirit Rock to Berkeley, and then got bogged down in this traffic and just got thicker and thicker and thicker. And I thought I was keeping up with it. I thought I was staying relaxed, meeting the experience. But sort of unconsciously, I was like, ah, I just don't want to be late. And these people are driving slow. And oh God, the person in front of me is lost because they're like checking every sign. It's like, ah, not this. But I was letting it go, letting it go. And then my phone went, Bzzz. and I looked over and said, stop. And it looked like I was at a stop sign. Stop. <laughs> so I, I, if I'm going to tell my students to do it, I had better well do it myself, right? So I'm like, okay. Let's do it. So I stop. I take one breath. And in that one breath, I actually realized, whoa, I was a lot more stressed than I thought. I was starting to actually kind of uh, wish this person in front of me, like, implosion. <laughs> it's like, don't be in front of me. And the next 10 cars, don't be in front of me either. Like, come on, everybody, let's just don't slow me down. And I was letting it go, but it was actually accumulating I took one breath and I was like, oh my God, I'm, I'm not getting anywhere any faster, but I am loathing my experience. So here we are, and I let go. It's like, yeah, it's just traffic. This happens. It happens to everybody. Wherever I'm going, they'll understand. Traffic happens this time of day. And then I proceeded, and I proceeded not to tailgate that person, not to wish them unfortunate experiences. <laughs> <laughs> Began to take note of the architecture and landscaping of this Berkeley neighborhood. I was like, oh, it's beautiful. They've planted that and they've planted that. It happened to me once when I was um, driving across the Golden Gate Bridge. and when, um, It was like eight years ago. There was a freak snowstorm, really rare in the Bay Area. And it made this one um, shaded part of uh, Marin um, icy. And there'd been this car pile up I was heading in that direction, but again, the traffic got slow, 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 and then I was crossing the Golden Gate Bridge, and it stopped. 
And I didn't, I had a cell phone range and I didn't know what to do and I was going to be late and they were depending on me. I was like, oh man, this is bad. And I heard on the radio that someone uh, got really injured and I was like, okay, you know, let's, that opened my heart a little bit. It's like, yeah, we should definitely wait. <laughs> I have my appointment, their injury, oh, but it's my appointment. <laughs> and then I was like, kind of just waiting in this mind state of like, not really letting go, not really going to go over where I should be or where I wanted to be, but I was tolerating it. And I looked out the window and I saw these um, Japanese tourists go by and they were bundled up. I'm like, wow, it's really cold outside and I'm in a warm car. They've traveled all the way from Japan to be on this bridge and I live here. <laughs> and they're having to like run over the bridge because it's so cold, but actually I have music on, I have the heater on, and I'm sitting right on the Golden Gate Bridge and I just looked and there's that huge, tall bridge span. I was like, wow, I've never seen this up close like this. I never have the time to really stop from this angle and look at it. I look over to one side and there's Alcatraz Island. It's like, oh, it's beautiful. And it's like the entire Pacific Ocean with one freighter heading out and one coming in. I was like, I have a front row seat to one of the most beautiful places on the planet. And I was like, I want to get to where I'm going. In that mind, that was suffering mind. And dropping that and sitting there, like this is, this is priceless. This is priceless. Same thing happened in the Detroit airport once. I missed a flight and had to spend the night sleeping on the Detroit airport floor. And like, and luckily I fell asleep, so it kind of tired my egoic mind. Woke up around two o'clock in the morning and saw the night crew cleaning everything, buffing the floor and polishing all the chrome, watering the plants. And I was like, oh, that's when they do this. That's interesting. But they did it with, with such reverence. There was no speedy, there were no customers waiting on them. So they were just slow. They'd done it every night for decades, I guess. It's an old airport. I thought, this is beautiful. It was a little bit sleep deprived, so it kind of <laughs> made everything glow a little bit. Like, oh, it's beautiful. This airport is dying to get out of. It's actually beautiful. When you stop, it's actually beautiful. And then in the morning, all these people came in a rush to get on their plane. I was like, oh, you heathen, you don't even get it. You're in the most beautiful place. This guy polished that brass for hours and you're just walking by. Like, stop and appreciate how beautiful this place is. And I was like, oh, that was me. That was me before I surrendered into this moment when I was still caught, when I actually surrendered, when I exhaustedly let go into that present moment, it was beautiful. And that's the invitation. It starts with a breath. It starts with a step. It starts with one spoonful of squash soup. And you could have been elsewhere preoccupied and you actually redirect your mind into the present. And you build upon that so that you can take neutral moments. And you build upon that so you can tolerate a little bit of discomfort before you shift out of compassion. And slowly you gain your freedom Moment by moment, you gain the capacity to be intimate and the range broadens and deepens. And it broadens and deepens until there's very little that can throw you off. And you stay in a contentment that's not predicated on what's happening. It's not chained to what's happening. I'm only happy if this and I'm always sad if that. You actually can be free, content, well, no matter what's occurring. That's where this path goes.
Everybody who's walked it has found that. And that's what you've been in the trenches doing. And if you've had delightful sets, lovely. If you've gone through hard times here, lovely. Because that's actually how you're winning your freedom. By dedicating your intimacy to yourself, no matter what the circumstance, so that you can begin to reclaim your own well-being, no matter what's occurring. That's all I have to say tonight, except to end that it's uh, really been a delight to practice with you in these ways. And um, I wish I could know for you what the next month would be like to see how this ripples forward for you. But uh, it's very powerful what we've done here, more than you could know if this is your first time. So I wish you well today in what you discover through your endeavors. Let's just sit for a moment together and let the words uh, dissipate. May we all find that wise heart that is free in all conditions. We have a period of walking and then a final sitting. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.